0: Okay, good morning, everyone. Um, Thanks for joining this session of the Oxford Virginia Legal Dialogues. I'm Ruth Mason. I'm the Edwin S. Cohen Distinguished Professor of Law and Taxation at the University of Virginia and an affiliated, actually now I'm the Faculty Director of the Virginia Center for Tax Law. My co-convener for today is Silly Dagan. She's Professor of Tax Law at Oxford University and one of the directors of the MSc in Taxation at Oxford Faculty of Law. The purpose of this workshop is to foster communication between tax scholars and non-tax scholars. Um, I think by now everyone knows our format. Uh, Cilly and I like to invite an academic that we admire uh, and to choose a work for discussion that was written by a non-tax academic that they admire. Then we invite the author of the work to discuss it with us here online. All of our sessions are open to the public and find out more about upcoming sessions, you can join our mailing list or watch social media for announcements. So first I'd like to introduce our commentator for today. We're delighted that Georg Kofler is joining us from VU Vienna's Research Institute for International Taxation. Georg is an incredibly prolific scholar and an active member of several research networks, including that he's a member of the Permanent Scientific Committee of uh, the International Fiscal Association, EFA, and the ECJ Tax Task Force for CFE Tax Advisors, Europe. In addition to being a professor at VU, Georg has taught at NYU, UF, University of Sydney, and before uh, teaching at VU, he was a professor at uh, the University of Linz, where he was the head of the Tax Law Institute. Uh, on a more personal note, Georg is one of my closest friends and Um, sometimes co-author, and perhaps most importantly, former student. Um, You didn't think I would get away with not saying, (laughs) let you get away with me not mentioning that. Um, Okay, so we're delighted that uh, Georg chose a piece authored by Robert Schutze, who joins us today. Robert is a professor of European and Global Law at Durham University in the United Kingdom. Robert is a constitutional scholar with particular expertise in the law of the European Union and constitutional federalism, which we're going to hear about today. He co-founded the Global Policy Institute with the political scientist David Held, and he's visited uh, as a fellow or as a professor at various places, including Harvard. Uh, Gehrig and Robert have in common that they are both prolific scholars and I'm not going to give even a brief bibliography of Robert's work it would take too long but I do want to mention for those interested in the particular topic of this session um, Robert's award-winning book from dual to cooperative federalism the changing structure of European law which is available from Oxford University Press um, where Robert's also a joint co-editor of the Yearbook of European Law, uh, OUP's flagship journal on the law of the European Union. So welcome to Georg and Robert. Um, Before we jump into the paper, I wanna just note the format. So Georg will comment, Robert will respond, and then Silly and I will make some remarks or ask some questions to which either of you, uh, Georg or Robert may respond. Um, And then we'll open up the conversation from, Uh, to participants. So if you want to be in the queue, use the raise hand function, Um, click participants and then raise hand. Note that this session is recorded and that the first part before the Q&A may be posted on our website. Our website includes all of our prior sessions, so you can check those out after today. Um, Okay, so please convey your name and institutional affiliation in the chat so that we know who's here. And so that we can give that information to Robert uh, after the session in case he wants to follow up. So without further ado, let me turn things over to Georg.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you very much Ruth and Silly for the kind invitation and it's a true pleasure to be here and it's even more of a pleasure that Robert accepted the invitation um, to discuss um, a general topic with us that is very close to, to what the text community is currently discussing. So um, uh, before kind of talking about the paper, I should note that the tax area has seen or the direct tax area has seen a kind of revolution, at least since 2013, perhaps 2016 in the European Union, where we move from um, European regulation dealing with the removal of obstacles to more uh, anti-tax avoidance perspective on the internal market. And for many of us in the tax world that raised a lot of issues where the authority of the union to regulate for so the competence starts and where it ends. And uh, it might be the case for many of us tax people that we see some of the constitutional issues too simplistic or perhaps we overcomplicate them. And I think this is an excellent format um, to link what we discussed in the tax world with a general European constitutional law. And I think Robert's paper is a great starting point to dig a little bit deeper in the current issues that we face in the tax world and perhaps get the general uh, constitutional perspective on what we are discussing. I have, as for people who know me know that this is what I do. I have prepared some slides just to kind of uh, walk through the main topics and also to focus what what I would like to discuss or where I, where I would like to see answers <laughs> to which, to which problems we have. Okay. so um, the uh, Roberts paper is uh, comparative in nature, uh, dealing with the internal and external limits of um, union-wide market regulation. And that's a common theme in the US where we have a federal body and we have the uh, US states and also the European Union where we have the member states but we also have the supranational body. And in such a wide market, it's kind of uh, common or at least a similarity that there are rules to regulate commerce or economic activities in a union-wide matter. In the US, the main provision for that is the Commerce Clause, um, uh, and uh, it links to the 10th Amendment, because the Commerce Clause also has the idea that the things that are not transferred to the federal state, so the Congress, remain with the states or the people. We have a similar starting point in the European Union, which is the principle of conferral. So only the powers conferred to the European Union are with the European Union. Everything else is retained by the member states. Uh, This is basically the the, the very simple and basic uh, setup, which also raises the question, which we will discuss, is what are the limits and the, the breadth of this conferral? In, in in the European uh, diction, that's usually called positive integration because regulation is seen as being the internal market closer together. So it's positive in the sense that, that we have an active movement towards a market integration. There is also another side that both the U.S. and the EU system share, which we call in the European Union negative integration. This is largely done in the European Union by way of the fundamental freedoms, by the removal of discriminations. And in the U.S., it has a very interesting um, uh, uh, counterpart. That's the Dormant Commerce Clause, um, which uh, is interpreted by the U.S. Supreme Court also as prohibiting discriminations based by varying or disparate um, um, state regulations. And I think this is a, a point where Ruth is probably the most prolific scholar globally on dealing with uh, dormant commerce clause issues also in in, in the tax area. But we will really focus on the first portion, the positive integration. I think the rules, and, and I, since I'm a, a, a European Union person, um, the, the rules have some similar starting point. Um, we see that, uh, and we will see that also in the next slide, that uh, on the left side, we have the US uh, constitutional law. So um, yeah, we have this Commerce Clause that the, it is um, the, the power of Congress to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states and with the Indian tribes, uh, which is supplemented by the 10th Amendment, uh, which limits that power to certain third- Quite limited power to a certain extent, and we have a similar setup in the European Union and I've put article five here as a starting point where we have this principle of conferral um, That only the powers conferred to the Union belong to the Union, the remainder is kept by the Member States, and this is. Um, uh, supplemented by two principles, uh, which might pose some at least procedural or political limits, the principle of subsidiarity, so that the union shall only act if the member states cannot do the job alone, that's very simplified, and the principle of proportionality, so that the union can only act in a proportionate manner to target a specific problem. What what um, Robert does in his paper is um, he discusses the limits set by the case law, basically, um, to both the Commerce Clause and the internal market competences. Um, I will focus a little bit on the internal market in the European Union and then come back to the Commerce Clause, also perhaps to see some some comparisons later on, Uh, but just to give everybody a basic setup how the internal market competences work in the European Union, I've tried to put the the main provisions here on the slide. So in the Union we start with um, the, the question which Kind of competence might the union have? And there are two types, one, two main types. One is exclusive, so only the union can regulate in these areas, and one is shared. So it's a competence that both the member states and the union enjoy. And one of the main shared competences is the internal market. Uh, So the the union-wide market and the internal market is defined in a programmatic way uh, in Article 26 of the Treaty on the Function of the European Union as being basically an internal market without internal borders where all economic factors, uh, goods, labor, services, capital can move freely. Of course, this is, this is kind of a goal uh, and not the reality because we still have uh, the fragmented tax markets in the European Union, but from, from the, the, the spirit, uh, internal borders should be removed. And how is this done? We have three kind of provisions that are interesting now. There are many more competence provisions in the treaties, uh, but three are, are kind of relating somewhat to the, the topic that we are discussing today. We have article 113 uh, dealing with indirect taxation, which was seen as one of the main hindrances when the treaties were created in the 1950s, because it's so obvious that customs duties or uh, disparate turnover taxes might be a problem for economic integration. And then what we see now is we have a general um, rule in article 114 for the internal market in general. Um, But this harmonization rule does not apply to fiscal measures. So direct taxation is out of the picture for 114 and is still in Article 115. Why is this relevant? And and Robert makes uh, this point very clearly in his paper. Article 114 is basically the, the kind sibling to Article 115 because it was put in later in the treaty. And it has two advantages for general harmonization. First, it doesn't require unanimity. So it's uh, a majority based provision. So it doesn't have this, a strict sovereignty backstop in, in the sense that all member states have to agree. Majority is sufficient. Of course, there are political backstops. And it is under the ordinary legislative procedure, which means that uh, the council and the EU parliament together decide. So it's uh, what, what was previously called the, the co-decision procedure. In Article 115, we are still living in the world of the 1950s um, uh, in, in the limited sense, because here in the tax area, and Article 115 is used for tax harmonization, the council is the only deciding body. So there is no involvement of the EU parliament except for being having, been, uh, having to be consulted. And the council has to act unanimously. So a single member state can veto tax harmonization. Uh, And it's uh, the special procedure, so the council alone. And it also has a further limit. And and Robert also points this out in his paper um, that uh, under Article 115, we can only have directives which need to be implemented then by the member state. Uh, states, but we cannot, for example, have decisions or decisions um, uh, targeting only or addressed addressed only to one state actor, and we cannot have decisions, for example, in uh, establishing union bodies. All things that would be possible under Article 114. So if we take a look uh, and this is uh, uh, what Robert's paper is dealing with are uh, the limits to in the internal market competence and and I think that the limits are quite similar from a legal perspective in the terms the notions are used for article 114, so the general rule and article 115 for tax that it needs to serve to a certain extent the establishment or functioning of the internal market. So do we achieve the goal of full economic integration. And establishment and functioning have two different meanings. One deals with the obstruction to, to freedom, so to say, so obstruction of the fundamental freedoms or the free trade, and the other one, deal, the other prong, deals with distortions of competition. And the limits of these words or of these functions have been um, pointed out by the Court of Justice. And and Robert develops the the, the, the ideas that, for example, not every tiny distortion gives a competence to harmonize. It has to be um, uh, an appreciable distortion of competition, for example. And not not any obstacle that might in the future arise uh, gives the power to uh, to, uh, deal with potential fragmentation. future post potentially arising things, but the obstacles have to be likely. So there's some kind of a quite I think it's a low threshold, but there's a threshold that not everything can be harmonized by the European Union. And similar developments um, uh, can be found in the um, uh, in the case on the Commerce Clause in the U.S. It's not it's not a one-to-one uh, um, um, parallel, but it's similar developments that there has to be some kind of appreciable uh, problem that needs to be regulated. So what are the regulatory powers? And Robert deals with that um, with regard, for example, regulation. What is regulation? What is prohibition? Can you, for example, uh, create commerce under the Commerce Clause? And Robert points out to the uh, U.S. Obamacare case, where the uh, court, um, uh, US Supreme Court ruled that the creation of commerce, where no commerce exists, is not covered by the Commerce Clause, for example. Um, so, there are some some features that might be interesting then for the text discussion um, Perhaps one point: uh, the sovereignty backstops that we have in in the European Union deal with, um, uh, as I mentioned already, that only directives can be issued. There is a special procedure, the unanimity requirement. Those are all kinds of second level sovereignty backstops that are not similarly um, uh, present in the U.S. constitutional law. Um, so that we see that in the European Union, some sensitive areas are not subject to majority voting but subject to unanimity, and we have, we have seen. This uh, when it comes to the to the sanctions now in the uh, Russian war against Ukraine that we need, this is a sensitive external political issue. So there is also a unanimity requirement. And of course, some people don't like unanimity. So we will come back to that in a second. Um, now, let me relate a couple of these points to the tax area. Um, initially, um, and you can see some of those directives go back in their proposals to the late 1960s, there was the idea to use direct tax harmonization to remove obstacles. So it's well known interest orders directive, parent subsidiary directive, merger directive. They all created, they, you can call them pro taxpayer directives, because they were meant to integrate the market more closely, allow European companies to grow, to merge, to, to have several um, um, uh, subsidiaries all over Europe, and to compete on a global basis with US multinationals, for example. So they were, we can call them pro freedom directive. Uh, freedoms directive, directives in the last couple of years, we have seen a couple of directives which reversed our picture on EU harmonization. So in the past EU harmonization for tax people was giving more freedoms and giving rights. Yeah? Now it has flipped since basically 2016 um, that directives are giving more entitlements or more rights or more protections to member states and putting additional burdens on taxpayers, if you see it simplified. One example is the Anti-Tax Avoidance Directive from 2016, where the union uh, legislator uh, created the obligation for member states to introduce certain anti-tax avoidance measures. For example, CFC rules or interest limitations or um, exit tax rules so things that are not required by the fundamental freedoms which are not required to uh, close or integrate the uh, economic activities of of taxpayers or of companies but rather to uh, create a level playing field is sometimes an argument to ensure fair taxation to serve the internal market as a whole to create fairness so there are all kinds of subtext arguments now which have nothing to do anymore with uh, creating freedom rights uh, for taxpayers so I mentioned a couple of points here on the slide. There is the introduction of obligations to tax. There might even be the creation of new taxes. We have seen that with the proposal for the digital services tax. And also those directives, to a certain extent, regulate purely internal situations. So provisions that apply also for economic situations inside a single member state. Uh, the interest barrier for the tax aficionados among us is one rule that applies irrespective of whether transactions across the border are purely internal. So, we, the, 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 the use of the directive as a tool of harmonization has moved from removing barriers and removing obstacles to kind of creating additional safeguards for member states' budgets, so sort of, to say. Also, we see second level arguments. Uh, with regard to the global minimum taxation, for example, which uh, is based on OECD discussions, and it would only apply to cross-border situations, since that would create a problem for the fundamental freedoms. So in light of the fundamental freedoms, the directive has been expanded beyond the OECD rules to cover purely internal situations within single member states. So we see kind of the, the second level argument as well, that directives want to kind of take OECD discussions into European Union legislation and to prevent or avoid frictions with the freedoms they are extended to domestic situations to at least facially remove um, discriminations and there there are a lot of, of examples. So one point that uh, might be interesting also for tax people is um, the unanimity requirement, which is certainly um, not, not a legal limit in the narrow sense, but it's a, a strong political limit to um, tax harmonization. It has been criticized by many. The European Commission has put out a, a note that they will try to uh, circumvent it. Um, sometimes successfully, as we see in the regulation for windfall profit taxation, which is based on the emergency competence on Article 122 and not on a tax competence. So there are all kinds of 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 um, how should I say of, of features now in in the use of the uh, treaty for to harmonise te- taxes outside of unanimity, and the European Commission even mentioned Article One Hundred Sixteen, which is a very broad anti-disparity rule, um, um, uh, and it's pretty unclear if that could be used. There's an old statement from the pre von der Leyen commission where they say okay you cannot use Article 116 for full harmonization, but we will see how that develops. Um, the basically that the sovereignty aficionados have received further firepower by the FIAT case recently, and, and Ruth has uh, already written on that, where the Court of Justice uh, kind of used the sovereignty in the tax area that member states still enjoy um, to transfer it to the state aid discussion. And the court said, well, since we have such a limited firepower as, a, as the union in the area of direct taxation, Uh, It is still the autonomy of a member state to set its own tax system. So only the autonomously set tax system can be the comparator for state aid discussions. So the union cannot simply invent a pan-European standard to set a benchmark for state aid. It has still to be rooted in a member state system. So that the court also approved that sovereignty perspective um, with regard to the state aid discussions, just as a side note. The, The... Two, two short final points and then I, I hand over um, is um, one point that we are discussing very intensely is the uh, is the question whether international law can put an external limit to e, uh, to the use of EU competences. And um, this is specifically interesting in the tax area because some of the EU directives deal with third country situations, either third country taxpayers or third country investments by European taxpayers. And some of those provisions arguably conflict with existing tax treaties of the member states so bilateral international agreements. And the question there is, Is this really in line with the European spirit that directives can be used to simply override international tax treaty obligations of the member states? And our text world discussion, and I'm not sure if this is the, the end of the picture already, focuses a lot on Article 351, and in the text world we basically read it in the following way: we say, okay, treaties between the member states, they are simply subject to the supremacy of Union law. Yeah, so it's basically not a problem, and a treaty override through directives basically okay. Um, when it comes to text treaties with third countries, we use Article 351 and say, OK, pre accession treaties are somewhat protected. So they stay in place, but need to be renegotiated, perhaps post accession treaties. So once a member state has joined the union are not protected by Article 351 with a following subtext discussion, because the problems do not arise. Um, um, with regard to what Article 351 covers by its wording, because it only covers by its wording conflicts between international treaties and the EU treaties. But here, the problems that we see in the tax area arise between tax treaties and EU directives and their implementation. So it's not a, a question of international law versus primary EU law. It's international law versus secondary EU law. And what we derive from the case law is that the Article 351 idea also applies to directives, at least in spirit. And then the question is, what about directives that are issued now? So do they count? Do we take the issuance of a directive to determine whether text treaties should be dealt with as post-accession or pre-accession, because the problem arises only by passing the directive? So is there some kind of mutatis, mutandis application Uh, if a directive creates the incompatibility of um, of a tax treaty, for example, with union law. And final point, very briefly, um, once the union starts regulating third country situations, uh, we enter a completely new world of competence, and that's the treaty making competence of the European Union. Because there are some provisions that say that, of, of course, the European Union is an international body, so it can conclude international agreements, and it does so frequently. Um, and it has the competence to do that in, in, in certain areas and in some other areas which are kind of closely related, this competence would be exclusive so only the European Union could do that that member states would have lost the legal authority to conclude treaties, uh, international agreements with third countries. And the question that we are discussing is if the whole development, for example, with regard to let's take pillar two or pillar one, so the OECD work on, on global tech standards, if those OECD ideas and transposed into EU directives, they regulate the global picture. So inbound investments into the union, outbound, out of the union. And the question is, will will we end up in a situation that all those tax questions related to Pillar 1 and Pillar 2 will not be able to regulate that in member states tax treaties with third countries, but rather that only the union has the legal competence to conclude tax treaties with the US, for example. So this is also kind of one competence question that came to my mind when when I read Robert's paper on it. Okay, sorry, I think I have almost, uh, probably two minutes too much. Thank you very much for the time being.
0: Well, that was a lot, um, <laughs> <laughs> Robert. <laughs> uh,
2: thank you very much, uh, Georg, and thanks again for also to uh, to and the uh, city for organizing this and for, for inviting me. Georg, thanks very much. This was almost a crash course on the EU um, constitutional law in the context of, uh, of taxation. Um, I wonder how to go through uh, all of these points, but maybe I'll just raise a few issues in relation to each um, uh, aspect of your of your excellent presentation. And, and then maybe in the discussion, we can come back to some more detailed aspects um, of it. Um, as, uh, as Georg was saying that uh, in a way, like in the US, uh, you always need to think in terms of two strategies with regard to EU integration, and that is this positive and that negative integration. And I think most uh, uh, most of the articles that I, for example, have have read from Ruth, as well as Georg, relate mainly to the negative integration side. And I've also worked on on this to some extent, but today we're, we're looking at the at the positive integration side. And, and there's a number of provisions and a number of principles that, that Georg already mentioned. I think in the context of, of um, taxation, The two uh, key provisions are Article 114 and 115, Uh, and as was said, it's an interesting way how Article 114 was meant to really help the harmonization effort within the context of the European Union after the single European Act, but the second paragraph of that provision excludes taxation from that as being one of the most sensitive areas that the member states wanted to, to keep the old regime alive, and that's why um Georg was absolutely right to concentrate on Article 115, which is the 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 older uh, variant of this uh, harmonization power within the Union. And um, you were also right to mention Article 116. And I think among the EU constitutional lawyers, this is now also an interesting provision because uh, there has been a number of uh, of uh, related debates to what extent that is something that can be used to circumvent the limitations that you outlined in the context of Article 115. Um, And uh, I mean, politically um, and constitutionally, I would be more than in favor of this, but of course the the, uh, legal basis is relatively indeterminate in a sense that you don't really quite know what is the uh, legislative procedure, if there is a legislative procedure to be followed. And it seems to be an extremely supranational legal basis. So to some extent, the member states would regard this as a nuclear option. Um, I mean, for those of you who are not so familiar with the provision that basically allows the Commission to suggest harmonization if there are distortions of competition that uh, that cannot be addressed by article 115. And, and so it is a relatively strong uh, legal basis there, but uh, just recently another article has just been published in the European Law Review for those tax lawyers that are interested looking specifically at this, at this provision. Maybe one uh, additional article that could also be mentioned is article 352. So this is just one further up from article 351. Um, article three hundred and fifty two is the most general legislative competence of the European Union and so to some extent you could also look at that as a as a potential base of um, of harmonization um, and legislation with regard to taxation in the in the European Union. But it does have the same problem as Article 115 it requires unanimity within, uh, within the council. So some of the issues are, are, are identical. Perhaps the, the difference to Article 115 is that you could also use regulations, for example. I think this is uh, generally open to any form of measures that are there. And uh, even though um, Article 115 has interpreted, or the Court of Justice has interpreted, some of the limits on Article 115, like the direct effect criterion, relatively generously. And 352 doesn't have that at all. So there's there's always this sort of very general uh, provision that is that is also there in in the background. Um, absolutely. Um maybe one uh, aspect that maybe I, I throw in as a as a constitutional. Uh, eccentricity one could think about also implied powers within the context of uh, of the eu um i mean this has happened famously in the context of external relations um why not think of that uh, in the context of fiscal relations also but that would again be highly controversial and it doesn't look to me at least not now that the court of justice would uh, would go down this route but i'm um, I'm just putting this out there so uh, so uh, if if it ever came to the fact that the pressure on the union to harmonize uh, taxation or to even you know uh, adopt the EU Union text they are doctrinal and and maybe creative ways to to think about that um maybe quickly on on Gereb's comment in the moving from the constitutional elements to the legislative elements and I, I think this is something that I also found interesting, and, and I think a lot of tax lawyers noticed this. Now, Johanna Hay, I think I also mentioned this move from these pro-freedom or liberalization um, directives towards a much more restrictive understanding that co- seems to consolidate national tax powers rather than to remove distortions of competition or obstacles to trade. Uh, I mean, especially in the context of the um, ATAD 1 and 2, where where I think that there have been some constitutional problems or these. Uh, the and um, uh, she raised uh, and you raised some too uh, on, on this. And this is probably uh, where some of the constitutional questions on tobacco advertisement uh, really come uh, come into the equation. And that's to what extent a, a directive that seems to be rather giving more power to the member states or consolidating more powers, restricting if you like, um, or embedding forms of, of distortions um, are actually entitled to be adopted on the basis of Article 115 and so on 114, and and that's absolutely the critical uh, question there, where these cases like tobacco advertisement in the EU, or in the context of um, of the US, the the cases that the uh, um, that the paper looks at in the first part are really coming in, and maybe just on on this. Uh, I mean, the court has been very relaxed again on Article 114 and 115 post-tobacco advertisements. So uh, many constitutional lawyers have have spoken of a false dawn if you like, in terms of uh, some of the limitations. So perhaps there is some hope for the tax tax lawyers there too, uh, uh, in that the the European Court of Justice would probably be relatively light touch when it comes to enforcing some of the limitations that tobacco advertisement has introduced, such as the removal of obstacles, i.e. having some form of of positive liberalization effort or when it comes to the functioning of the internal market, uh, some form of um, removal of a substantive distortion of competition that is that is being there. So there is a little bit of hope there, because I, I, I guess the, the post tobacco advertisement um, jurisprudence has been relatively light touch again on some of these quite uh, on some of these restrictions that, that have been introduced. Uh, I guess um, the, the main issue would be in relation to unanimity voting. I think that in terms of competences, uh, um, it, it's the Court of Justice has been, relatively, has been pre- relatively pro-flexibility or pro-union, even if the union, like in the other uh, directives, gives back uh, competences to the member states. So maybe there would be harder, but I, I think in a way, maybe the revolution when it comes to positive integration for the future might lie actually also Um, also there when it comes to to looking at ways to circumvent the unanimity requirements uh, uh, or the political safeguards of federalism that are there. Maybe third point, uh, and I think also important, uh, uh, Georgina, I think also Ruf has mentioned that there is another element uh, that is interesting, um, which is probably part closer to the negative integration provisions than the positive integration provisions, but where the court has spent an awful lot of time uh, tracking maybe that development of, of giving to some extent powers back to the member states and that is state aid. Um, state aid to use these um, categories that uh, Ruth and Georg and, and also I have used still follows this per country rule. So I think that even though the court of justice uh, has been invited many times now by the commission to uh, to adopt an overall, if you like, or federal approach when it comes to the standard of assessment, um, it's been it's been using as a frame of reference still the member state, and so uh, that to some extent makes it harder, I think, also in the context of negative integration, to really in, to really try to to tackle the problem of tax avoidance, for example, or tax evasion when it comes to the state aid provisions. So, in a way, these are these are perhaps for for people who who would like to see further integration on on taxation, rather negative or maybe more. Um, more hindering developments when it comes to the jurisprudence of the court. Um, Maybe lastly, looking also at the external relations side, as as Gail mentioned, this was not part of the paper, but I think it's an excellent sort of mosaic to to, uh, add to to that uh, picture. There, the course, had been quite robust when it comes to Article 351 in the past. So this is a provision that basically says that any form of uh, international agreements that the member states have brought into the union and is protected by that provision. So the supremacy of European Union law does not apply. Uh, but Article 351A does not apply to interstate agreements of the member states. So all bilateral tax agreements among the member states, basically, that conflict with European Union law are out. And it only protects um, agreements with third countries. And there, as Gail was saying, only when it comes to. Free accession or, or pre-European European Union, but for anything that falls into it, the court has been tough. So it's been really uh, said that there is all European Union law basically prevails over some of these international agreements of the member states, be it primary or secondary law. So even a directive would be valuable and would be, would be enough to basically um, invalidate or Suspend, I think is the better word, uh, and bilateral tax agreement, for example, that, that one state has with a third country. Lastly, um, uh, to look at the external side of any eventual union legislation, again, look, I think that you uh, you predicted what will happen. I think that the competence provisions there in the treaties um, are Article 3.2, so Article 3, Paragraph 2 of the TFEU, which says, that when it comes to internal legislation, this is one of the variants of Article 3, Paragraph 2, um, the so-called ERTA principle, when it comes to the adoption of internal union legislation, the external competence of the union becomes exclusive. So this is also one of the reasons perhaps where the member states were incredibly careful when it comes to the harmonization of tax measure matters, because as soon as you do that, uh, actually after this ERTA principle or Article 3, Paragraph 2, the Member States will be deprived of of any of these uh, competences externally, and so this uh, uh, this reflex or constitutional reflex is um indeed something that that's would definitely apply to uh, what you what you were referring to so uh, the irony there, of course, is it's the same development as when it comes, for example, in, in other areas and. Um, that an international norm that is adopted by the European Union, so OECD standards that are adopted by the European Union will ultimately deprive the member states from negotiating those issues. Subsequently, the EU will adopt an exclusive competence um, in that. I mean, the parallel probably there, the closest one, is perhaps in the context of trade, but in trade it's by definition, an exclusive competence of the Union. So that's perhaps not the best uh, example, but it, an example could be environmental policy where this has happened, where member states and the Union negotiate some standards um, internationally in an international organization that the Union adopts it internally by means of legislation, which has the effect of depriving the member states in the future from uh, from negotiating again any in international agreement, the union would just take over, and that could be a side effect of the implementation of some, maybe at least one, positive consequence uh, um, from from a, a positive in the sense of pro-union and um, positive competence of the implementation of the OECD rules here. So even if to some extent perhaps it returns some powers to the member states internally, externally there might be that. Uh, uh, reflex via this ERTA principle that actually externally the Union will in the future negotiate for the member states some of these elements that are that are there. So perhaps there is uh, there is at least one positive thing for the Union even with these more member state protecting harmonisation measures that you were referring to as a as a tendency within the uh, within under Article 115. So perhaps a bit for the member states there they gain some power internally but ultimately a bit of a bit of success for the European Union as well externally. I'll stop here, and uh, maybe we will we'll, uh, we will have some questions from the floor. Thank you very much again, Gerhard, and, and um, I look forward to any questions.
0: Great. So, um, Gerhard, do you want to respond to that, or do you
1: want to? I, I have a, lo- a lot of questions myself, so I'm I'm kind of putting myself at the end of your queue.
0: Okay. So. This discussion was really interesting, but it's sort of like everything, right? So, I mean, it really made me think about a lot of questions and a lot of issues. So, I want to just, without being excessively coherent about it, I would just want to just say things that came to my mind as you were both talking. So, one, Georg said, Well, what happens if we pass, you know, pillar one or pillar two as a directive? Uh, Does this mean that the member states can lose external competence in tax treaties. And Robert says, yeah, that could be a consequence. Well, okay. Um, But these directives, are so in, in formulating the directives, the European member states are worried about violating the fundamental freedoms. So they want to apply the same rule internally as externally. So does this mean that you pass a directive and the states lose all control over corporate law because they've lost external control but the external control implies now full internal control over corporate taxation. So that's a question that I had and you know one of the things in you know bringing it back to comparative that's supposed to justify the states the US states retention of concurrent authority under the dormant commerce clause is the idea that Congress can't regulate everything. That there are going to be things that come up that Congress can't get to because it's got more important things to do. So now, are we imagining that the commission is going to have a ministry of finance uh, and an administrative apparatus to issue reg- regulations in the administrative sense uh, that are going to be needed to implement uh, pillar two? Um, on the the scope of um, the power of the European Union and the idea that um, you know that under Article 15, you have to have um, what in order to have competence, you have to have something that affects the functioning of the market. And, you know, there's the question of, of, um, you know, whether that just means facilitating, taking off barriers, or whether that could mean uh, reducing regulatory competition among the states. Um, It is an orthodox uh, sort of, it's a widely accepted idea in the United States that Um, you know, using the commerce clause, Congress can facilitate or constraints. So Congress could say, you know, you can't trade in a certain thing. And and that's accepted in the United States, Um, but it's also thought that, you know, we don't really know what interstate commerce is, right? It's the broadest power that Congress possesses, but still it's limited in some way. And so we constantly have these questions about what is commerce, but one idea is that Congress should be understood to possess the power to regulate whenever there's a collective action problem. So this is sort of the inverse of subsidiarity. You can't regulate if the states can solve the subsidiarity. But in the U.S., we look at it from the opposite direction. That is, Congress should ought to be interpreted to regulate anything that the states are in, in Incompetent to regulate. That is, if there's a problem they can't solve on their own, then we should understand that Congress has the power to solve it. So if there's tax competition, then we would say Congress can solve that problem. One thing that we haven't talked about that I think is really important and a significant difference between the US and the EU concerns the democratic deficit, at least for tax, right? Where, you know, these tax. Directives, if they're passed, are passed by the council. They're not passed by the elected representatives um, of, uh, you know, voters in the various member states. Um, let's see. So, I have so many other things, but let me just say one more thing. So, um, you, know, we've talked about positive integration. We've talked about negative integration. The dormant commerce clause, the commerce clause, and you know, the fundamental freedoms, and you know, the Article 115, let's say, or Article 114. Um, is there some, there there may be something that's in between that doesn't fall into any of those categories, um, which is federal solidarity. So it's not entitlement, it's obligation. So so what, What we, we could talk comparatively about what membership in a federation or quasi-federation, whatever you wanna call it, um, what obligations this implies um, for states vis-a-vis the central government, but also vis-a-vis each other. Um, And then what obligations that membership implies uh, for states towards residents of other states, citizens of other states. Um, I have lots more, but let me stop there because I'm not the only person here. So Robert, I don't know if you wanna respond to that or collect more comments or...
2: Maybe I'll uh, I'll start with that because there's quite a list of, of things already. <laughs> it would give some people also some some time if if uh, if they want to to ask a question. Oh
0: yes, and um, don't forget to raise your hand if you have a question.
2: Thank you so much. Let me start from the back. So I, I think that in terms of solidarity, and maybe linking this also to this idea of 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 competition between legal orders or competition of tax orders, if you like, within the member states, I think that this in my view, has been discovered not just by the OECD issues of tax avoidance, but that's been a problem in the EU for quite some time now, in terms of both the internal market, but also I think when it comes to the harmonization, in the harmonization context, of course, because of unanimity. Uh, and so I think that the weakest link, if you like, or the, the member states that 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 has the lowest, um, uh, probably the lowest tax, uh, rate is probably not willing to necessarily harmonize up that tax rate Uh, um, and so i think that there is a is a question of uh, of solidarity with regard to both Um, i think one of the countries that of course has been targeted uh, as being complicated is for example ireland both with regards to i think that the Solidarity with regard to corporation taxes and the harmonization um, is concerned, as well as, of course, in the case law, there are numerous cases now um, uh, that deal with violence, uh, special um, tax arrangements when it, when it comes to uh, the fundamental freedoms. So, absolutely, I think that, that there is a question at the level of the member states for solidarity uh, that perhaps comes out of being part of a big, bigger block and perhaps to have an almost a a moral or constitutional obligation to to limit that competition of fiscal orders or a race to the bottom that's that's taking place. Um, uh, but of course, legally, I think that's for, certainly for the harmonization, that's gonna be hard to, uh, to impose simply because the treaty says unanimity. Um, which brings me to the democratic deficit point. Um, I think this is often used by constitutional lawyers as the argument against saying that there is a democratic deficit simply because every single member state to some extent could veto that um, piece of harmonization or or legislation that's there. Of course, you're right that uh, it's a matter of the council. um, And so the national parliaments are out, but uh, you could say that the national governments are meant to be agents of these national parliaments. So in in a way, perhaps you could say that when it comes to all legal competences of the union that require unanimity. To some extent, uh, this argument has been made, the, the democratic deficit perhaps is not so strong. It becomes stronger to some extent or for some when it comes to qualified majority voting, simply because uh, in some areas of the treaty, the European Parliament is not yet a co-legislature when it comes to uh, to the council. And so there is, to that extent, a structural deficit when it comes to uh, uh, when it comes to democratic input within the within the European Union, but for example, for Article 114, that would be there. It would be uh, the ordinary legislative procedure. So symmetric rights between the European Parliament um, uh, and the Council. Um, moving backwards, Article 115. Absolutely, I, I think that uh, there are some limits, and and you you're right. I mean, you are the great expert when it comes to the commerce clause. Uh, I, I think that there are also some limits that the, you know, new federalism in the 1990s in the U.S. has generated. Um, and, and I think Sibelius or the Obama case also introduces, um, I think, some constitutional limits uh, um, to the Commerce Clause. So not not everything there is, is allowed. Um, and, and I agree with you that these federal competences or union competences should really be used in order to attack collective action problems. So um so I think that when it comes to tax competition, for example, you could argue that this is really the way to to deal with it. Though I thought um in the US also there Congress hasn't really been so active. Um I mean question mark when it comes to Adopting federal uh, harmonization measures when it comes to taxation. I thought there were only one or two um, 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 issues where this has happened, uh, um, whereas the rest really is still subject just to the dormant, dormant commerce clause um, limitations uh, for the states there. So, maybe an interesting question for me would be then to you what's the matter there? Because in the Union, I, I could certainly, you know, for the European Union, it is about unanimity. So, you are as weak as, if you like, the weakest member state. Uh, that's there. But in the US, you could imagine that um, the simple majority pools that exist would, would generate much more legislation when it comes to tax harmonization. And yet, that doesn't seem to, uh, that doesn't seem to be the, the case there. Uh, moving upwards to uh, to your second point, I think from constitutionally, when it comes to the administration of an executive powers of, say, for example, the implementation of, the, of OECD standards and so forth, or the control, um, I'm more positive that the union would have that competence. Um, because under article 114, there is a number of cases where the court of justice has said that these, um, the internal market competence is not just a legislative competence, but also an executive competence. So the limits that the union has uh, under article 114 could also be used to the same extent to establish, for example, an administrative structure agencies um, and even take individual decisions when it when it comes to uh, uh, taking a decision because article 114 now allows for the adoption just of measures so that that has been taken uh, by constitutional scholars to also allow for the adoption of administrative decisions for instance for for instance. so to to that extent, I'd say it's possible, I think for number two to, I wouldn't worry that uh, the administrative elements are lacking when it came to the implementation of some of these uh, of some of these measures. And finally, um, um, for the pillar one and pillar two and the external competences question, you're right. I mean, I didn't mean to imply that uh, uh, within this scope of Union legislation, uh, anything that falls within it would be externally preempted or there would be an external competence. Uh, when it comes to this ERTA principle. Um, The Court of Justice has said um, um, that not anything that falls within the scope of internal union legislation will become an exclusive external competence of the union, Um, but only to the extent that um, uh, this internal legislation would be affected. Now, whatever that means, uh, and again, there are no clear-cut constitutional uh, criteria, but um, the court has, for example, said that when it comes to minimum harmonization internally, Um, That to the extent that the member states are still able to go beyond that standard, they would probably then also still be able to conclude international agreements. So the internal freedom that is there for the member states, in theory, could also be an external freedom. So in that sense, not anything that falls within the internal tax le- legislation would then preempt the member states from concluding any international agreements there would be a limit even if it's a, in you know even if it's not always very clear but there would be a limit to say that not everything uh, would be depriving would be depriving the member states of, of concluding international agreements
0: Okay, I hadn't thought about these issues previously, but I I mean, it's striking me is that, you know, this pillar one and pillar two uh, 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 accepted as a directive has much broader implications than I had really thought about before today, but you give a follow up.
1: So, very briefly, just to combine the Ruth and, and Robert's responses. Um, so uh, the the democratic deficit uh, that we have with unanimity voting only under the special legislative procedure where only the council is active, raises a number of also domestic constitutional problems and further on problems with the external competence. Just kind of to make them the mean case, uh, the people in the OECD are people from the National Tax Administrations. The people in the council are people from the National Administrations. Um, So whatever the OECD decides and will be implemented under Article 115, there is not even a national parliament involved in those steps. The supremacy, of course, uh, of EU law leads to the complete switch off of domestic constitutional protections. So the principle of equality, for example, in our domestic constitutions has no, no value anymore because everything is done on the level of administrations, basically. Um, and then, and that picks up on, on Ruth's question with Pillar 1, Pillar 2, but you can also think about the Common Consolidated Corporate Tax Base, or the BFIT, as it is called in the future, where we might have complete corporate tax base harmonization, at least. Um, and, and this could, in my view, clearly trigger the external competence of the union. I mean, Pillar 1 needs to be implemented by a multilateral convention so that the the implementation tool is already international. And if the EU passes a directive, the directive might say in this internal union act that the implementation of the act, which requires this multilateral global agreement is also in the hands of the union. So we might have a situation that from the beginning to the end, no parliament was ever involved. And we have completely changed the international tax structure from a European perspective. And, and that kind of feeds back in this democracy and the democratic deficit discussion that um, all the previous tax treaties, for example, where parliament is typically, national parliaments are involved typically, will be overwritten by union legislation and union uh, external uh, treaty making power where no domestic parliament was ever involved. So, so you you can imagine cases where I think this can become a, a, a real a real issue that things happen to also avoid scrutiny by parliament. Uh, so I'm I'm I, I see I, I kind of see the risk a little bit.
0: Robert, did you want to respond to that? Yes,
2: if I if I if yes. I can, I mean I, I I think it's a excellent point. Yeah, uh, you know, maybe maybe just um, just some thoughts on it so uh, of course you i mean you you uh, you pinpoint the the main problem of our times no that i think that after these forces of globalization were really unleashed in mainly the second half of the 20th century a lot of the powers have been delegated to the executive um, in the form of negotiating international agreements or the european union is part of that trend to if you like look for supranational solutions um, outside the member state and so the modus operandi there is really uh, intergovernmental in a sense that it's the governments no, the executive that is um, that is negotiating um uh, or bargaining on on certain types of solution and th- there is you are right absolutely an enormous danger that the national parliaments are really outflanked when it comes to um their input into fundamental choices, now from climate change to taxation to uh, international trade uh, standards and and so forth. I think that the answer that you could suggest when it comes to, and maybe uh, to some extent, um, um, the unanimity rule within the council is then not an answer because you're right, in a way, it's still the same administrative agents or tax experts that are also then in the council. Uh, that have been in the OECD Uh, though I think that there are ways that the European Union uh, has developed methods of allowing parliaments to do this so for example it's not so much that the European Union um, dictates it but it allows it is when it comes to um, article 352 where um, in the context of uh, Germany but also prior to Brexit the United Kingdom and also in Denmark before the national executive could, could give an agreement in the council on a certain type of measure. It needed to get a parliamentary entitlement from the national parliament. And um, of course, this is hard because I think that in a way, you know, it, it ties the hands of the minister who is going to be in the council. But it's it's not been, that's perhaps the point that I wanted to make. It's not been prohibited by the union. So um, it is up to each of the national parliaments to determine to what extent it wants to have a um, you know an imperative mandate to use that um, you know parliamentary term in, in which it wants to tie its own executive um, to a certain resolution that the Parliament has taken when it comes to it. Of course, uh, I mean it undermines to some extent of course the, the bargaining element within the Council and so forth, but that that would be one national solution that the European Union has not has not prevented from, uh, from, from doing so um not ideal i mean it would mean that the national parliaments would always have to shadow the european union and i think this is already very hard um but if it was limited to certain sensitive areas i think you could potentially introduce uh, introduce um, uh, this i mean the alternative of course and and maybe uh, this is my preferred option is of course to involve the european parliament so i think that if you accept the idea that the European Parliament does have democratic legitimacy as I would, for example, I've never bought into this um, no demos theory for those of you who who don't know what I'm talking about. Some some academics argue that there could never be any democratic legitimacy within the European Union uh, because the European Union doesn't have any demos that sort of supports that uh, parliamentary structure that exists. I don't believe that. So I think that for me, uh, The idea that you have regular elections, you have an instrument um, uh, and an institution that is there for democracy uh, in the form of the European Parliament could compensate for for that uh, lack of national democracy. So one solution, of course, could also be to just insist on, you know, involving the European Parliament in the ordinary legislative procedure. And and that could be that could be good for all tax measures Uh, (laughs) now from uh, from. uh, Three hundred fifty-two to um, to uh, one hundred fifteen and and uh, or one hundred sixteen for that matter, and um, if that that that's perhaps one way to to solve that dilemma that uh, you uh, you don't involve national parliaments because it would be complicated to actually uh, create that sort of imperative mandate structure, but but you rather have the European Parliament really controlling, checking, amending a legislation that's uh, that's there. On the external aspects. Um, maybe uh, i think there you could argue that there is again the same solution that you could have um, it's not perfect uh, because when it comes to the negotiation of international agreements um, the parliament now after the lisbon treaty is able to uh, or is, is entitled to give its consent for all areas that internally require consent or co-decision um, and so again, if you then say you democratize some of the harmonization bases within the treaty, Article, you know, 15, 14, maybe 352, um, this would also have an external reflex on the external conclusion of external agreements, in that um, the European Parliament would be entitled to at least consent to these agreements. Again, this is of course not perfect, um, uh, because uh, consent fear really means take it or leave it. Um, and so uh, oftentimes the European Parliament is, is then facing this dilemma, does it want to block the entire international agreement on the one hand, uh, because it disagrees with Article 305 of that international agreement, or does it let uh, that this go through? Um, and again, that creates, to some extent, a form of democratic deficit. So it's, again, not a perfect solution, but there is a, a bit of perhaps a better picture um, than no democratic involvement whatsoever.
3: Silly. Yeah. Hi. Thanks. Uh, so, uh, to disclaimer, I'm neither a constitutional lawyer nor an EU uh, lawyer. So please uh, excuse the, the naivety of, of my comments. Um, but your discussion, which was fascinating uh, to me, uh, uh, for me was uh, raised. Uh, um, a question and particularly the discussion of the accountability and, and the question of, of uh, the existence of, of donors raised the, the, the point for me um, of what about the people and uh really to what extent is the European Union a uh, community of people rather than uh states? And and it may be interesting to to go back to the to the paper and to the comparison with the with the US uh in asking whether uh, are we watching uh, an evolutionary uh, process in which uh, unions become uh, more or less integrated? Is this a, a, some kind of a historical sociological uh, process or just uh, something that's uh, doomed to, to stay as a union of states, but not look at, at the people? And the reason I'm, I'm interested in, in this question uh, takes me back to tax. To Right, because tax, at least for me, is is not just about the market. Right, tax uh, is really what uniquely links uh, the, the the state and its people, and it's uh, it has a lot to do about uh, people's identity and the the identity of the community of people uh, that's incorporated in, in in the the state. Um, and, and that might be the reason why the, the the states of the European Union have chosen to leave tax out of the jurisdiction of the of the European Union to, to start with. Again, something I I'm just speculating on. Um, and it, it would be interesting to to try and and think about the the distinction with, within within the tax uh, uh, system itself between what is market related and and what's not market related uh, to make that kind of uh, distinction. Um, One thing that, that, uh, Georg, uh, you said in your uh, presentation uh, kind of surprised me because you were talking about the the process uh, from more freedom uh, to the people, to more power to the states uh, and, but, when you're thinking about this in the European Union context, um, I I was wondering whether it's really about more freedom, because more freedom to the people really facilitates uh, the race to the bottom that Ruth was uh, talking about, while the the more power to the states allegedly uh, protects uh, uh, states' sovereignty and and the ability of states to to facilitate uh, community. But to tie all that Uh, back into where I started from, the the question of of state sovereignty kind of uh, um, made me thinking, um, what is really the the purpose of us protecting sovereignty? I mean, are we protecting sovereignty for the sake of the states? Or should we, or possibly are we protecting sovereignty uh, in order to protect the people? of the state. Uh, again, something that uh, Ruth uh, alluded to in, in the terms of, of solidarity, right? So Ruth was talking about solidarity between states and between states and the uh, federal government. But I wonder if we could talk about uh, any kind of solidarity between the people of the European Union or the, the people of the, of the US and what difference would this make?
0: Robert?
2: Um, this time in in uh, in <laughs> team and tandem with with Georg, perhaps uh, as there were also some some issues uh, addressed. Uh, um, thank you very much, Chili. I, I think I, I I would say that the European Union self understanding has been that it's moved away from just a purely international organization of, of states towards an, an, an understanding that. Also includes um, people or individuals. So, I mean, the, the 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 classic way is just to look at it in the context of, for example, questions of direct effects, where you know the treaties themselves have been seen to give subjective rights. But, but even more importantly, I think since the Maastricht Treaty, you have a certainly a move also of thinking of of national peoples being active agents, also in the political context of the. Of voting for the European Parliament, the European Parliament being increasingly involved in the internal and external actions of the Union, and so I think that in many in many ways, I think that the Union would be seen as a Union of states and peoples today. If you if you if you allow me this, in a in a way perhaps that you could link it to the United States, where I think you have also this. Uh, Bivalent, or this this idea of a dual nature that the a union of state is a, a sort of a, a union of states, but also of, of a union of individuals that are that are being united there. I think there are certainly elements there. I mean, turning your argument, if you accept that on its head, it's one of the things that I personally find interesting as a constitutional lawyer, and I think some people have made this uh, argument before if we do have representation of the individuals already at the european level by the european parliament why is there no taxation at the european level so uh, so why do we have a situation where it is you know representation without taxation and uh, you could argue that i think that the, the bonds that have been created by the union are now so strong that you you could actually say you know that the uh, taxation powers are in implicit um, power of the European Union because I think that that bond is there and I think that you you mentioned that that bond is strong and it, and it's it's so strong that the American revolution was started on it in some ways No, so and not just the American revolution also you know the British civil war in the 17th century has a tax origin so I mean tax issues are maybe the most personal issues for a lot of people No. where uh, um, and so um, yeah, if 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 you lose half of your salary or forty percent of your salary, I think that this is a major personal uh, personal issue you now. when it comes to income tax, for example, where, where the state has an incredibly strong element there. So I wonder if if, I mean, if that democratic legitimacy of the union to some extent is already there to actually create a fiscal union. Um, and uh, I mean, we've seen in recent times, I think pushes now for the union to, to really do this. I, I don't know if you followed to some extent the COVID uh, uh, the next generation developments uh, on, on the, how to fund the COVID uh, assistance that the union has been given, but there is now of course, again, um, a, a, a vibrant discussion on what could be tax uh, powers of the European union that, uh, that are there. And so one needs to find them. It's not so easy. And, um, in a way, these harmonization competences don't seem to allow for tax powers themselves. They only seem to allow for harmonization of national law. Um, but there are possibilities um, in the treaties, I think, that uh, have yet to be exploited when it comes to, to also establishing tax powers. Um, though you're right, I mean, maybe very quickly, uh, and then I, I pass on to, uh, uh, to, to, um, to Georg, uh, that tax always has been a very sensitive issue. And uh, it's been sensitive for the union in the internal market. I mean, we didn't talk too much about it, but um, when it comes to the ordinary constitutional principles in the internal market and the fundamental freedoms, the court of justice has developed its own special principles for tax measures because it doesn't want to apply the same very interfering uh, principles. For example, the principle of mutual recognition when it comes to uh, a taxation. Um, and so similarly, it's been in the past very hands-off when it comes to harmonization or, or the adoption of, of tax measures. Um, and I hope that this will change. I, I think that the link between representation and taxation is there. And, and, uh, and maybe that will also to some, ex- uh, to some extent address the, the, the question that you asked, whether this is a matter for the, you, you know, sub- who are we protecting solita- is, um, sovereignty for? Is it the States or is it the people? I guess that if we look at these global phenomena at the moment, you know, the tax, these, you know, these extremely complicated tax arrangements where ultimately hardly any of the member states knows whether it's able to tax one of these multinational corporations or not. um, And all these multinational corporations are even, even able to export their profits outside the European Union, because movement of capital also allows for the export of capital to third countries i think that's a that's a situation where if you want the sovereignty of the union or the sovereignty of the people of europe are really at stake and i think that the, the union should really act to 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 do to do something about this
1: no, to Maybe to to yeah. yeah only only very briefly so i i agree with all of the statements um and um the, the the and then now that I think about it, I'm not sure if the practice in the European Union is kind of legally driven or politically driven because all the harmonisation and also the the what we what we call what we might call anti-taxpayer harmonisation only deals with corporate taxpayers. So it's not the people that, that the um, the EU tax legislation really covers; it's corporations. So the, also the representation question is perhaps only a on the second tier question. And, and that seems to be the the program of the European Commission for a long time to focus on corporate taxpayers. I'm not sure if this is kind of politically driven and, and or with still is your arguments that we, we want to be kind of more positive to individuals exercising their freedoms and we can be stricter with regard to corporate taxpayers doing that. That kind of strikes me perhaps as one one distinguishing point where we might find some also legal rationale why we focus on corporates and not on individuals. And and for the for the second question, I think the or the second point, I think it's the question how cynical you want to be. Um, uh, we, we um, for, take, for example, the exit taxation in the ATTAT. Exit taxation means you leave a country, you, so you exercise one of your freedoms, you establish yourself somewhere else or you move your residence somewhere else. And at the moment you leave your country, that country will tax you on your appreciated uh, value of your assets without, having, without the, the need that you have realized the gain. So you don't have a cash flow, but you're still taxed. And uh, under the case law of the court or the freedom case law that's permitted to a certain extent if there's a proportionality escape that you can spread the tax payment over over a couple of years. But there is no EU fundamental freedom requirement to have an exit tax because it's anti-freedom. Still, the UTTAT puts an obligation on the member states to have such an exit tax. And now the question is, is this really leveling a playing field? Do we have an internal market rationale to, to have an obligation to have such a tax, or is it something different? And if it's something different, it's very hard for me to link this specific item, for example, to the establishment of functioning of the internal market. Now, now we can find meta arguments, which you kind of kind of underlying, underlying your, your, your points that you say, okay, the internal market needs to have member states yeah, because without member states, no internal market, member states need funding and budget. So the existence of the member states as parts of the internal market needs a solid budget. And for that, we need solid taxation. So kind of a very remote meta argument where anti-tax avoidance in the broadest sense should be something that is good for the functioning of the internal market. But for me, it's already, if you see, if you take tobacco advertising or the court's case, it's, it's an, I should say a remote argument, but certainly in the sovereignty area.
0: Thank you. Can I'm back straight oh, sorry. Bit, um, yes.
2: Ruth, or, um, if we still have a bit of time. Yeah. I, I agree, Georg, maybe here, I, I think that one of the interesting bits for, for companies um, is you're right that the representation slash um, taxation nexus is, is not so stronger there, even though you could say that uh, the taxation duties are imposed by the fact that the corporate charter used to be a grant that was given by a state to that company. So in, in a way you could say that you pay for your life if you like, by, by being subject uh, to uh, to taxation, and maybe very quickly, I, I think this is a fascinating point. Uh, I think one of the reasons why I think that the court was so conservative—I mean, conservative in a sense. Uh, no, sorry, the union legislature was so cons- uh, conservative in the sense of of um, allowing for these exit taxes and the codification of of you know the, you know the national grid jurisprudence and, and so forth there is that positive harmonization is not forthcoming. So I think that, I I mean, one of the possible hypotheses there could be that because negative, positive integration is blocked, the court doesn't want to push negative integration because in the past, when it comes to regulatory barriers of trade, I think what happened is that it pushed negative integration, for example, in Cassis de Dijon, but all of the other cases on the internal market, uh, because it wanted to push member states into adopting legislation, ultimately, at least that's what uh, that's what I, I think. So it wasn't so much the principle of mutual recognition as an automatic form, but it was a putting pressure on the member states to go into the council and to hammer out a deal under these um under these positive integration measures. And that hasn't happened in the context of fiscal measures for whether it's still unanimity or other, other political reasons that are there. And maybe what you see now is that the union recognizes that you can't solve that problem by means of positive integration because you have a number of, you know, kamikaze some member states that are ultimately not willing to make any compromises when it comes to uh, tax harmonization? And so the only way is perhaps to then give them all of the member states more powers under the internal market uh, provisions. I'm uh, sorry, the fundamental freedoms. Maybe just a question mark there. Thanks. Sorry, for uh, to come in.
0: Fascinating. So, uh, Angela.
4: Thank you for this fascinating discussion, uh, Georg, uh, Robert, Robert, uh, Ruth, and and, uh, Celia, I think it was very interesting for all of us. I just want to say some reflections from my side, because I think the whole competence discussion within the European Union is ultimately about what the EU can do and what it cannot do. And I just wanted to go through some of the points that you made and see, maybe offer my reflection on this. Ultimately, the limitations uh, to the competence of what the EU can do in tax are twofold. On the one hand, it's unanimity. On the other hand, it's substance, because we have to have an article in the treaty that tells you this is the legal ground. So on the unanimity, I think the way the discussion has been unfolding specifically in the tax context was, can we escape 1145? Can we use another legal basis? And this hasn't been mentioned today, but com- uh, country by country reporting is, is an example when we try to use another legal basis because it offers us advantageous procedure in terms of we don't need anonymity. Um, what if we don't have uh, agreement, but we cannot use other legal bases, then we still have this 116. And that's a very intriguing discussion uh, um, on uh, whether it's a nuclear bomb, whether we will ever see it uh, uh, being used. Or not. So this is where we are politically. In terms of what I think is more interesting um, from legal point of view is when we take 115. Are there actually any limits? The only uh, reading of the limits we can find when we read 115, uh, 114, sorry, and the jurisprudence of the court on uh, on that article, right? But what we do know, the big takeaways is light like touch review by the Court of Justice, pro EU court. And we have an article which is defended by the unanimity voting. So the court is likely to be even more uh, reluctant to police the limits of the competence exercise under 115. So I, I, uh, I don't think I will be very provocative to say, do we actually have limits under 115? And I think your alluded to that when he was speaking about meta arguments. What about exit tax? Is this really speaking to the uh, development of the internal market? And I think that's a very interesting discussion. Is there really a limit anything that will push us from 115 into 323352 uh, uh, and, and I think my view would be uh, that. Um, on way currently standard would be very hard to find example in the text field that will not fall under 115 that you seriously have to look elsewhere. In terms of democratic deficit, uh, I wanted to comment a bit on this, because uh, the last time we amended the treaty uh, was uh, really a long time ago, <laughs> it may not feel like a long time ago, but it was a long time ago. And I think the role of the parliament has changed at the political level. The parliament is much more active, had there have been uh, these uh, committees where the parliament was much more vocal about tax issues. So, in my view, when we come again to discussing the treaty provisions, there will be a very substantive discussion on uh, the role of the parliament in relation to tax matters. And I think we might see that being something discussed. I, I, uh, I agree that uh, member states are very reluctant to uh, forgo unanimity. But if the discussion is different, like what should be the role of the parliament, there we may see some, some changes be- that are long overdue. On this, and the final point on competition that I wanted to make, uh, which we kind of touched upon a bit when we spoke about pillars and the implementations for the EU, is really the impact on the competence of the EU, what has been happening currently with the international tax debate when the OECD is developing substantive provisions, and then they are implemented uh, by the European Union, we have that discussion in relation to EU and member states, when we speak about implementation of directives copy-pasting, et cetera. And we have that dynamic now developed between the OECD and the European Union. So before we even get into discussion, what will happen to the competence of member states versus the EU, I thought one angle, which we didn't touch upon, is that the impact on the competence uh, um, uh, when it comes to that dynamic between the intergovernmental body and the EU. Uh, Thank you for this um, time.
0: Robert?
2: Thank you so much. uh, I I think I start with the last one uh, again, because it's true that we didn't look at that relationship uh, in terms of say international organizations dealing with tax and the impact that they have on the, on the European union. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, it's mainly recommendations know that the OECD um, issues, these would not be uh, seen as internationally binding uh, uh, norms that uh, I'm, I'm, um, I'm 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 I mean I'm I'm not sure. So that's why I'm I'm double checking with you.
4: The the reality of Robert is that it depends on which hat on you probably will be answering that with which hat you will ask me to, to answer that question.
1: Mm-hmm. But
4: if if um, broadly speaking, there are different types of conclusions originating from the OECD. There are minimum standards and there are recommendations and there are best practices. So there will be a range of decisions. Uh, but then they could all be implemented within the EU uh, through our hard law measures. Mm-hmm. So there will be a range of, so I, I don't yeah, think you. distinguish.
2: So I think that in, in any event, I think even if it was soft law, then it would still having a, a form of indirect effect, I think, on, on European Union law. Not so much in that it, um, say, preempts the Union from adopting its own legislation, but rather that probably any form of legislation or maybe even some... Um, Primary law, though I'm not so sure, I think might be interpreted in the light of some of the um, OECD recommendations or the soft law conclusions that are that are being adopted. I think where you are, are truly uh, right to point this out. If it came to an international tax agreement that the European Union, for example, concludes, whether it's a you know, if it ever were the case that it concludes a bilateral tax agreement, for example, uh, with a, with another with with a country then the status of those international agreements in the union legal order is above ordinary legislation. So I think unlike, for example, in the US, an international agreement that is seen to have direct effect within the union legal order, because the union is a monist legal system, would actually prevail over internal legislation that is there. So it would be direct, I mean, in theory, if it has direct effect, it would be directly applicable, just like legislation and it would have a status that is above ordinary legislation in the EU. So to that extent, it would also limit the powers of the European Union to adopt any form of fiscal harmonization, for example, if that was the case. But I'm not sure for the OECD, so that's why I'm, uh, I'm not an OECD expert to what extent these norms are seen as, as treaty norms or internationally binding norms. I think that they will probably be characterized more as, for, as, as norms of soft law, No, as, as a recommendation to be addressed to, to, to the member states. Uh, Walking backwards uh, for the second element, I think that in terms of the European Parliament, you are um, absolutely correct to point out that the European Parliament is rattling in its cage uh, to get more powers for the Union when it comes to fiscal measures. Uh, And they're mainly, of course, in the context of um, an aspect that is not so much to do perhaps with tax harmonization, though that's also the case when it comes to, for example, some of the issues like tax avoidance, but it's in relation to the union's own fiscal capacity. So I think there the union parliament has been saying for a long time in its resolutions, the union needs to get its own fiscal powers. Uh, I mean, a former president of the parliament even spoke of of the need of a Copernican revolution when it comes to fiscal competences of the the European Union. But the parliament, I'm not sure how much power it ultimately has in in terms of pushing that agenda through. I think that it's, it's it's fairly limited there. And finally, I think, on terms of the constitutional limits on Article 115, um, I mean, Georg has already said it, it, it partly depends on these two alternatives. So I, I think it all depends, you know, is it establishment or functioning? Because the, legis- the legislation, even that is restrictive to the establishment of the internal market, such as these exit and um, taxes, um, that you know, without a doubt, hinder free movement of, of companies when they move from state A to state B, uh, could potentially still be justified by removing these distortions of competition. And and I think that uh, that would probably be the, the Trump argument here to say that, uh, you know, um, a German, you know, a formerly German company doesn't no longer establish itself in Germany, but rather goes to Ireland uh, because it's afraid of, um, you know, of, of some... Taxation disadvantage that it might have under German legislation as opposed to another legislation, and so that movement itself would be seen probably as a as a distortion of competition when it comes to the freedom of choice of companies to establish themselves within the internal market, and that would be the big question. Now, to what extent maybe um, these two elements need to be balanced? No, I think that I, I also hadn't thought about it. To what extent uh, you can have you can really justify ex- ex- union legislation that admittedly removes distortions of competition but at the same time introduces barriers of trades that are technically you know maybe unacceptable um, and i'm not sure i think at the moment um, as far as i know the court of justice uses these two variants um, establishment and functioning in article 114 and 15 as alternatives so it doesn't balance them. So if you if you fulfil one, you basically have the competence to deal with it. And mm. um, it would be harder. I mean, maybe there is one way to look at this by saying that the union legislature is also bound by the fundamental freedoms. So you wouldn't. So you would say the union has the competence to adopt this type of legislation that establishes barriers in the internal market, but that union legislation would violate the fundamental freedoms themselves. But this is really also a bit controversial because in in many ways, the fundamental freedoms are often seen to be addressed to the member states and not necessarily to the European Union. So you'd have to make the argument that the union is also bound by these fundamental freedoms and that the union legislature would be limited. It wouldn't be able to establish, you know, let's say major restrictions on the free movement of, of persons or companies or something else. Uh, that might be justified by, you know, uh, this idea of removing distortions of competition, but that violate the fundamental freedoms. But but that is another really interesting constitutional question that I would also have to look at to what extent um, that is the case that uh, the union legislature is itself bound by um, the fundamental freedoms. So in a way, I think that, you know, to translate it into U.S. terms, it would be to say, to what extent is U.S. Congress acting under the Commerce Clause, bound by the Dormant Commerce Clause. And in a way, this is kind of very strange, (laughs) yeah.
0: There's a good answer to that, which is not at all. Um, It's completely clear in the United States that Congress could stop uh, cross-border commerce if it wanted to. Um, But uh, this, we are out of time now. (laughs) We had such an amazing, such an interesting conversation. I have lots more questions. I know that there are questions posted in the chat, which we will save for you and send to you, Robert. Um, But I just want to say thank you both, um, Georg and Robert, for this amazingly interesting discussion. Um, Cilly and I are really glad to have you here. And we will continue to do these sessions. So everybody look on social media for the post of the next session. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much, especially to Georg for a wonderful presentation um, and uh, to Ruth and, and Silly for, for having me. Um, thank you also for the questions and uh, I'll, I'll hope I can join the other meetings maybe in the future too. Thank
1: you. Great. Big thank you from my side. It was wonderful to, to have you all, be invited.